Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to Venture Stories by Village Global Podcast. I'm here today for an exciting episode, Request for Startups, uh, Machine Learning and AI Edition. I'm here with Anthony Goldblum, founder CEO of Kaggle, and Ash Montana, general partner at Zeta Ventures. Welcome. Thank you, Eric. Thanks. Awesome. Why don't we introduce yourselves a bit? Anthony, do you want to introduce yourself and what Kaggle is? Yeah, sure. So um, Anthony Goldblum, uh, co-founder, CEO of Kaggle. So Kaggle uh, started in Australia about eight years ago, um, and we started out running machine learning competitions. And if you ask most in the machine learning community, like what, what does Kaggle do? That's what they'll know us for. One thing I'm proud of is we've exp- we've done a nice job of expanding beyond. So if you're a software engineer, you go to Stack Overflow for question answering and you go to GitHub for code collaboration. Kaggle's aim is to be the one place that data scientists and machine learners can get most of what they need. And so today when you come to Kaggle, uh, we have machine learning competitions, which are still a big part of what we do. And so a company posts a problem and, and machine learners compete to build the best algorithm. Uh, but we also have uh, Kaggle Kernels, which is a cloud-based workbench for data science. We have a public data platform where you can find data sets on most major topics. Uh, and we have a new uh, area called Kaggle Learn, which is short-form AI education. Cool. Ash, can you get into a little bit of Azetta? And what the investment thesis is and perhaps maybe illustrate, you know, a couple of examples via your portfolio companies. Yeah. Um, so Zeta was the first fund in the world completely focused on intelligent systems. So we specialize in understanding companies that gather unique data and then compound the value of that data by building some sort of predictive model or intelligent system on top of that. Um, and we just think that's a fundamentally new type of competitive advantage to understand, just like brands, just like marketplaces, um, and just like network effects, data network effects and intelligent systems are a new type of thing to understand in valuing businesses. And that's all we do. Some examples of companies we've worked for include Kaggle. Uh, so I was lucky enough to work with Anthony on Kaggle right up until the acquisition, but other companies in all sorts of verticals. So whether it's using computer vision to understand retail inventory levels, like Focal Systems does, or whether it's using computer vision to automatically process car insurance claims like a company Tractable, or whether it's totally new ways to understand time series data, a company like Crate.io in Austria. Um, that's examples, the three examples of companies we work for today. Well, first, I just want to say that this is our first all Australian podcast, guest you're, podcast. You're in the minority. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's very exciting. What types of companies does the thesis exclude that perhaps you might think were traditionally, you know, associated with traditional SaaS or enterprise? Yeah, it basically excludes a lot of what SaaS is today. I guess the way, one way you would describe what we do is pre-traction post data. As in, we get very interested in companies before they have any sort of metrics around monthly recurring revenue and churn of that revenue, et cetera, et cetera. And we're less focused on companies that are building a piece of software to put a workflow in a database, basically, or put the output of a workflow in a database, which is most of SaaS. And we're more interested in companies that go a little step beyond that to give the users of the software a bit more leverage by helping them actually make a decision. And part of making decisions is making predictions. And to get a machine to make predictions, you have to feed it data. So it excludes a lot of SaaS. However, 
it's funny because a lot of the companies we work for look like SaaS companies, as in they still have to build the workflow. They still have to build the little tool. It just so happens they're collecting data in the background to make predictions, to automate more of that over time. It obviously excludes a lot of other categories of investment like marketplaces. We don't invest in anything that's consumer-facing as well because a few reasons, like one, that's not necessarily been our specialty in our experience over our 30 years of investing, but also because a lot of the consumer data has already been gathered by very large companies. Facebook, Amazon, Netflix. Exactly. And it's hard to develop a bit of a competitive advantage over those companies. Not impossible, but it's just very hard. Right. So we focus on very specific vertical enterprise applications of machine learning mostly, but any sort of intelligence system. Are there niches within consumer that if someone was like, I'm dead set on starting you know, consumer machine learning company, where would you tell them to go? Probably finance. So we can go into this, but essentially I, I think, and I see most weeks, lots of opportunities to gather data that hasn't been gathered before that can be used to price an asset that hasn't been priced before. Either price it at all, like it just hasn't been priced well, or price it in a more granular way, as in week to week and change the interest rate week to week, or price it in a way um, that's more timely. So you can give someone a quick decision. So uh, an example of a company that probably is relatively well known at this place is a stage, sorry, is a company called Affirm or there's another one called Afterpay. And they allow you at the time of making a purchase online to essentially do layaway, layby um, and get that finance. Like if you're buying something for a thousand dollars online to just pay a hundred dollars at the time and then over. And they're able to do that because they understand your behavior and you fill in a little bit of information. They give you a credit decision effectively on the spot. And so I see a lot of ways to collect data on consumer behavior that is predictive of their ability to pay back a loan that is not being collected today. But you, but you think it's hard? Of course it's hard. All yeah. this stuff's hard. Right. But um, so I you think, think it's hard relative to enterprise. You're not as predictable or. I don't know. I mean, I think if I was to venture outside of my little world, maybe that would be like the next thing. Um, because a lot of the big consumer internet companies are not doing that because finance is regulated, because finance is hard, because it requires a different sort of balance sheet and asset base, et cetera, et cetera. That is the hard thing, actually. The hard thing is built about building a company in this space is how you capitalize it, right? Because using venture capital to give out a bunch of early loans that are probably going to default is not a very efficient use of capital. Um, and not a lot of VCs should want to do that because that's not what their LPs have signed up for. However, getting a loan when you haven't proven the lending model is really hard as well. Essentially, what I'm saying is you have to lose money to learn in the machine learning sense with lending, right? You have to see who defaults and who doesn't default, get that feedback, feed it back into your model to make it sufficiently accurate so that you don't lose money on a consistent basis. And that's, you know, what PayPal, what a firm did, sorry, in the early days. Right. They that's why entrepreneurs like... Max Levchin have an advantage there. because he's- Yeah, he can fundraise, yep. for sure. <laughs> That's very clear. It's also kind of scary because you don't absolutely certainly know that you're going to ever get models uh, that are accurate. Uh, yes, that's uh, true. There, Yeah, it's kind of a scary bit. I'm just thinking about that as a business. It's a scary business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there's, um, you know, a certain type of car loan that you get on the spot. And I've seen some companies try to approach that market. And it's not clear that 
the sort of people that there's like a significant selection bias there, as in it's not clear the sort of people that need to take out that sort of loan will ever pay it back at a reasonable rate. So I don't know. It's all math at some point, as in not just on the machine learning side, but like if you can lend out for lower than you borrow, sure, you can make money. But yeah, it's a little bit scary because you don't, you don't really know. Yeah, you don't know how much signal you can get on any borrower. Yeah. And it's like any machine learning application. You don't really know if you're going to be able to predict the thing that you're promising to customers if you're applying computer vision to whatever inventory management or something else. However, the cost of trying is very low because all you're paying for is software and maybe a bit of data here or there. You're not actually giving the money away and maybe never seeing it again. Staying on the macro before getting into specific ideas, you mentioned, you know, data that could be, you know, pre-traction post-data. For entrepreneurs that come to you and say, hey, Ash, got the data, got that. And you say, well, you don't exactly have the data. What's the common, you know, misunderstanding people have about their perception of, you know, of having the data? Oh, it's very nuanced. So it's a good question. And this is sort of where our process begins and where we try to develop an advantage as like an investment business because we're in business like everyone else. We have competitors and we have process, which is our intellectual property and whatever. And this is sort of where it begins. And so at that point that you said, we tend to sit down with the entrepreneur and figure out, okay, well, how many dimensions does your data have? Like, do you have lots of different data points connected to the same entity? So if we're thinking about a person, do you know their age and their occupation and their income? And like, do you know a lot about the one entity? If so, we can probably play around with a few different ways to make a prediction about that person. Whereas if you only know their age, you can't really predict much using that. We ask about the breadth of it. You know, how many of them do you have across what populations and different demographics and whatever? I'll continue with people because it's easy to understand. We ask about the cost of getting that data. Was it really hard to get? And therefore, would it be very hard for the next person to get? We ask about the fungibility of it, as in, did the data you get is it is it very similar to another data set I could easily get? Or is it perishable? You know, an example is in finance, you know, any pricing data is perishable within minutes, which makes it not very valuable. So we go through all of that when we talk about the data itself. And then we're not even at the hard stuff yet. The hard stuff is figuring out, can it predict anything? And so we'll work with a founder really early on to experiment with either ourselves or through people in our network experiment with some very basic models um, of how to make a prediction off that data that would be relevant to a customer. So you start with the simple stuff, the more statistics-based stuff, the stuff that's actually just like wins most Kaggle competitions is the really straightforward stuff and combinations of it. And then you sort of move to the more advanced stuff over time. But we work through all of that with the founder before making an investment. And you like entrepreneurs who have clever ways of of getting data or or non-obvious ways? Yeah, if if only just because it's a barrier to entry to the next one that comes along, right? It's very rare that someone has an idea at a point in time that no one else has. Um, however, the ability to execute on that, which in this case involves getting data, is important. We also sort of usually need to see someone that has some understanding of the problem, right? What are they trying to predict with that data? And why are they trying to predict that? And usually you'll need to have had some industry experience to figure that out. Yeah. So for some of these examples, you know, we're about to get into healthcare space. For example, do you require? Do you really want to see industry experience on the team, or where do you trade off between skill sets? Like what? Types yeah, of teams it it depends on the domain, right? Like some problems you need to feel to know about. Like it's an epistemic question. Other problems you can appreciate from afar just by interviewing a lot of customers. Other problems are incredibly obvious to all of us. 
Um, like a lot of problems in the health system are pretty obvious to all of us, unfortunately. So it, it just depends on the problem and the, the degree to which you have to understand a specific workflow that's involved in getting the data and solving that problem. It, it really depends. It, it, it's both as in we have founders that are applying com- the computer vision in retail thing. Like everyone's been in a store. They're just really good at computer vision. They had no supermarket or grocery or retail experience at all. Um, and they've figured that out. But others, you know, need a lot of expertise, like at a company we just partnered with called Revo in manufacturing. Cool. So I want to get into specific ideas, but the first question I'll ask is if you guys weren't working on your respective projects, is that in Capital Google, and you were building a company in the space, what uh, what idea would you pursue? And maybe I'll start with you, Anthony. Yeah. So, so first of all, I, I should say I like my job. So, uh, and, but it might be interesting to talk about what I like about that Cavill's um, working on, because uh, that could be interesting and instructive. So some of the big pain points that we see in machine learning at the moment is the ability to collaborate effectively. And so Cavill Kernels uh, is very focused on machine learning tooling is where software engineering tooling was 15 years ago. And so Cavill Kernels is really aiming to make machine learners more productive. And I think this is, it's one angle on solving this problem. You know, a couple of things we believe is that Machine learning will happen in the cloud using a cloud-based kind of interface or IDE. Um, people are already using Jupyter Notebooks, which are browser-based. The fact that data science machine learning workloads are very bursty. So one minute you're doing exploratory analysis, you're looking at charts. The next minute you're training a deep neural network. Cloud is very good for bursty workloads. And also uh, j- just the fact that in the cloud, you don't have to, you don't have the challenges of, you know, we've all had the experience of using Google Docs versus Microsoft Word. It's much nicer to collaborate in a cloud-based environment. So that's something Kaggle's working on that um, I'm very excited about. Uh, the other one is our um, data sets platform, just wanting there to be a, you know, you want to find a data set today. You could do a Google search and you end up buried in the Bureau of Labor Statistics website or something like that. We believe, we we really believe there should be one place in the world that exists where you can find data sets. Those, I would say, are uh, two areas that Cavill's working on that are still very early and it's not clear. I think it's clear that a, a solution like the one that we're working on uh, is go- is going to end up doing very well. But, um, you know, the space is, is still early. Ash has a company called Domino Data Lab that is taking much more of an, you know, top-down enterprise focus uh, to data science collaboration with a Cavill Kernels-like product and they're doing extremely well. So it is going to be very interesting what data science tooling looks like. One company that I'm a shareholder in is Crowdflower, which does data labeling. And I think it's an extremely exciting space. You can't do anything with machine learning without good data. I think that, you know, data labeling also I view as uh, having a lot more potential than is currently realized. So one thing that Crowdflower and others are focused on is embedding your data labeling in with your, so, so that it's more of a continuous loop. Up until now, it's mostly been you get your data labeled, you throw it into a machine learning algorithm, but then your model starts atrophying you need to pump it back through you know, some kind of labeling uh, mechanism. And so having, having much more of a continuous loop approach to data labeling, I think, is very exciting. The other thing that I think could be interesting is intelligent labeling interfaces. So at the moment, you get these human labelers who they'll circle, you know, they'll color in street signs, for instance. But I feel like there's a really nice opportunity for data labeling software to make a first guess at where the street signs are and then uh, have the labeler just make the correction. Data labeling can be very expensive, and this has the potential to massively drop the cost of data labeling and then massively increase the amount of labeled data. And then 
Finally, I guess verticals I look at that Kaggle has worked in that I find exciting. So I like science-driven industries. I think they have nice barriers to entry because if you're willing to learn the science of, a, of an industry, it's not a, it's not, it's an industry that's, that's harder for others who, who aren't willing to put in the hard yards on the science or, or get put off by that, um, get turned away from. And so two that I like uh, that we've worked in, one is the pharmaceutical industry. So, uh, we've done a lot of work on taking chemical compounds and trying to predict which uh, make for good drugs. We've done that with Merck and Pfizer and Boehringer Ingelheim, and I always found that very interesting. Uh, and then the other one, I know if, how, how much of a long-term industry this is, but oil and gas is similar. They connect seismic data and they co- collect well logs and core data, and there's so much data at the moment, uh, geologists and and uh, petrophysicists make gut feel decisions. And so the ability to take that data, use machine learning to more systematically parse it and make better predictions about you know, the things they care about, where to drill, how to drill. And even if you're squeamish about the oil and gas industry, I've got to tell you that this is an, an unambiguous good. Um, you know, it's not good for anyone when wells get drilled that don't produce, right? And so um, it can be environmentally, you know, both help improve the capital efficiency of oil and gas companies, but also just mean that fewer wells are drilled and only the ones that are going to produce you end up end up uh, getting drilled mm. on the data later on the side i invested in a company called scale api yeah, sure. it's similar but uh it started general and then now i've applied i think specifically to uh, self-driving cars uh, space yeah to echo what anth said two things one scale a few other companies label box is another nice uh, one yeah label box um mighty ai there are a bunch of companies that have popped up in the last two years that have got to very good levels of revenue very quickly. And that's just something that may be interesting for listeners to hear from, you know, someone who's seen the numbers. It is, it is very clearly a huge opportunity. A second point, keying off what Anthony was saying is in about 2014, I got really excited by what was going on in the active learning field. So that is a machine learning algorithm that sort of does what Anthony said. It gives you something, then you correct it, and then it gives you something else. And it's a very, um, another people sort of a related field is interactive machine learning. And I've been trying to find companies working on like real putting active learning research into practice since 2014. I've only really found one and it's doing incredibly well. We did it. We did start working for them and partner with them in 2015. But if anyone is working on an idea in that space, I think there's huge opportunity applying it directly to the data labeling problem, but also more specific industry problems as well. Yeah. Are there other spaces within data science tooling that you guys are want, want people to go pursue? Or? Yeah, I think Anth covered a lot of that, but I think there are a few more. Uh, one is actually on the hardware side. So What's really exciting today is we've got cameras everywhere. We've got images of everything all the time. And we've got really good methods for object detection and whatever else that have um, developed in the field of computer vision. Thanks to research projects like ImageNet, started by Fei-Fei Lee, who works with Anthony as well at Google. Now, we've seen a lot of development in that field. However, we're really starting to hit the limits of the images we're getting. So that means we need different hardware. And so I think that exists an opportunity and this is really hard to do and very capital intensive but someone's going to got to do it and will do it to develop more custom modular camera systems that collect images appropriate for a specific computer vision problem so what i mean by that is cameras that can work at a really high frame rate or a really low frame rate depending on what your application is or different resolutions or different positionings or different uh, apertures because at the moment, a lot of the computer vision companies or startups that you see, 
they're just sort of doing what they can do with really cheap cell phone cameras. And that's great because they're really cheap and they can get up and running and they can put all these cameras everywhere and collect data really quickly. But they hit limits pretty quickly. And we're just seeing this in a lot of companies we work for. Um, they're really hitting the limits of what cheap cell phone cameras can provide. And I think that there's an opportunity for either a struggling camera company or a camera hardware company or a new startup or a big company like Google to come in and provide a very flexible camera platform. I think that would be cool. This whole area of interactive machine learning I mentioned, moving away from that, I think there's a lot, and Anth might have a bit to say about this, in the area of, I guess you call private machine learning. So that is having a data set, obfuscating it, and then having a bunch of people who can't actually see what the underlying data is um, work on a machine learning model on top of that. And if they're really successful, as in they build a model that's really accurate or predictive of something, then the person who owns the data set can pay them for it and get access to the model, but not actually see the underlying code to the model. So it's sort of private on both sides. Now, we've been able to do this to date using very expensive, so they say, methods. So using things like homomorphic encryption and whatnot, but they're not quite right. And there are some promising projects out there. There's one called Open Mind. There's a few others, but you can sort of imagine if we're able to do this at scale, it would get really interesting because you'd essentially have a bunch of Kagglers or a bunch of freelancers working on data sets from a bunch of really big companies that have the data. Like the expertise and the data is very separated today. And things like Kaggle sort of bring those together, but a lot of uh, organizations are sort of prevented from doing that for privacy reasons and confidentiality reasons. So I don't know. I think that'd be promising, but Anthony's had more experience with this than I have. Well, it's, it's a space that we follow. When we started looking at things like homomorphic encryption and um, other ways to disguise data sets, we were initially very pessimistic. And the reason being is that in order to build an effective machine learning algorithm, historically, you had to look at the data mm. um, and you, ca- you cannot explore a homomorphically encrypted data set. And actually any data set that you, that you disguise, you, you can't explore. I'd say the, the space has become a little bit more intriguing with the rise of deep neural networks because it used to be the case that the way machine learning you did well with machine learning is you would start by looking at the data you'd come up with some hypotheses about relationships in the data then you'd put those hypotheses into a machine learning algorithm and the machine learning algorithm would be trained off the back of the hypotheses that you put into it now with deep neural networks you're you're actually more able to just this is not entirely true, but it's more true than it used to be. Throw data into a deep neural network and so you don't have to explore it to the same extent. Mm-hmm. And so that gives you the ability that at least makes it more plausible that never looking at the data could actually generate uh, something useful. On to your question about areas, uh, you know, sort of data science tooling areas. One of the big pain points putting models into into production, I, I saw this tweet that you know, I think it was Gina Blaber from O'Reilly had this tweet that I think sums it up perfectly. It took me three weeks to train my machine learning algorithm and 11 months later, it's still not in production. Uh, productionizing models is really difficult. I, I Perhaps, you know, I should have mentioned this earlier, Kaggle's now part of Google, so perhaps I'm blinkered uh, in the way I think about this, but... I find it hard to imagine that it's not the cloud providers that are 
that end up winning the the productionizing machine learning. That being said, you know, look at companies like Snowflake. You would have thought it was a no brainer that the that the big great data data warehouse companies, cloud data warehouse companies, were going to be the clouds. And and you have a company like Snowflake that is incredibly strong. So I, I I do think it's plausible that somebody outside the big three cloud providers ends up building the dominant way uh, to productionize models. But it is a huge pain point today. Yeah. Yeah, we're seeing that as well. Another area, just one more, is um, I guess the next best thing to private machine learning would be to work on synthesized data. So that is, you have a data, you're a big company, you have a data set um, that is from your customers, and you come up with a model that can generate a very similar data set with the same qualities, so same number of dimensions, same relationships, whatever else, and then you can give that synthesized data, completely fake however fundamentally representative of the data you actually have to outside parties. So you can give it to a contractor. You can give it to someone who's going to build a little demo for you. You can give it to a potential customer um, for a demo, or you can even give it to your internal engineers to work on so that they're not working on production data and maybe deleting it accidentally. So data so synthesis. In a GDPR world, that, that becomes even more important. Yeah, that's true as well. Under um, the new GDPR rules, you don't necessarily want to be giving away customer data to external contractors and whatnot. Or well, um, you want to limit where it's going internally as internally well. Internally as well, exactly. So intelligent data synthesis is a pretty interesting area that's maybe like the next best thing to private machine learning. Okay. Let's look at general enterprise software a bit. Where within that broad segment are you? Do you want people to go build companies in? Yeah. So I think it's important to distinguish between general, like horizontal enterprise applications and vertical applications that are very specifically solving for something that's in a specific industry. So, you know, automating something on a manufacturing line or something like that. So we're not talking about that for the moment. I think in general enterprise software, there are a lot of very hard problems to solve that even if you solve them would be very hard to sell however super valuable so one of them is just knowledge management i mean i can't count the number of companies i've seen that are trying to give you better knowledge management that is i'm looking for this document and i can't find it basically and you know a lot of companies are still working off sharepoint a lot of people just use email even slack searching for past yeah. conversations is not easy yeah and slack has made leaps and bounds in this regard but doesn't necessarily have all the data in there. It doesn't necessarily have the best search. It's not necessarily the place you go. What I envision is a world where an intelligent system surfaces information to you. So imagine applying the newsfeed concept to your work. That is, it looks at what you're browsing. It looks at what emails you're getting. It looks at what Google Docs you're working on. It looks at all sorts of stuff like usage behavior. And it gives you a newsfeed every morning including things like you might be interested in this document someone else created. So not just better finding stuff, but surfacing stuff to you proactively to help you in your work, to help you come up with new ideas, to help you collaborate better with your colleagues, etc. In a sense, this is really hard to do uh, because it requires you to integrate all sorts of internal data sources and whatever else. But in another sense, that's a very tractable problem. I think the hardest thing about this is distributing it, right? Because new productivity and workflow tools are very rarely adopted top down. They're usually adopted bottom up, word of mouth, by people going, 
hey, I found this thing. It's helping me get my get through my email quicker. It's helping me get through my to-do list better or whatever. You look at companies like Asana or whatever else or Basecamp. These companies had to grow very slowly, very carefully, and be very capital efficient. Basecamp being a great example because they had never raised money except a tiny bit of angel money because they spread through word of mouth. You can't force people to like, adopt a new productivity tool they have to really come to it on their own atlassian's another example right very capital efficient took a long time to build that company over a decade slack is the exception to this rule so i think there's a huge opportunity there i think it's hard to do but it's a tractable problem from a technical perspective however distribution is very difficult. So if you are to build this sort of company, you want to make sure you're very capital efficient. Ash, does that mean it's easier to build such a company if you're already in? Like if you're Slack, it might be easier for you to have it as an extension to Slack as opposed to start from a ground a position of yeah. a cold start. Yeah, I think so for two reasons. One, they've already integrated a lot of internal data. So they've solved most of the data integration problem, which is most of the problem. And two, they're already something that people have brought into their lives and people sort of have integrated into their daily flow. So you have a jumping off point. I mean, the other obvious company to do this really, really well is Microsoft or any of the email providers or Google. Um, because again, that's already part of your life. But applying this newsfeed concept, no one's really done that. One of our companies, uh, Forethought AI is going to launch in the next couple months and. Very cool. Something similar. So, all right, stay tuned for them. What are other opportunities you're excited about? Well, I think it's sort of keying off a lot of what Anth was saying, but it's it's customizing models, right? Like, there's just this huge gulf between state of the art, working in an academic research setting, uh, working on sort of in environments that don't necessarily represent the real world, and the real world, which is a lot of messy data, a lot of problems, and not the right people to work on them. And today you've got an amazing array of very basic machine learning models, basic in that like they don't do that much, but they do it very well around computer vision and speech recognition and um, text summarization and whatever else. But going that extra, they'll get you to sort of anywhere from 60 to 80% accuracy on a lot of problems. But going that extra 20%, which you often have to do, not always, is very hard to do if you don't have a really good machine learning team internally. And, you know, most Fortune 500 teams don't, companies don't. And so I think tools that help you customize and develop your own models are, are very much lacking. So it's everything from customizing an object recognition thing, using something like Anthony said before, like an active learning-based labeling system. It's everything from customizing your own language understanding engines. But Building real systems that real people, as in non-machine learning engineers, can use in the real world is very hard today because there's just not that extra level of customization possible in these tools. So, for example, if you're an HR person, right, and no one in your HR team is a machine learning engineer, which is probably the case, and you're trying to predict employee churn, there's just no way you can do that. But it's actually not a very hard problem. Like, statistically... And technically, that's not a hard problem. If someone just gave you a basic interface to drag some data, type a hypothesis in natural language, and then run a very basic regression, you'd probably be able to predict employee churn with above 80% accuracy for sure, maybe 90. 
Um, but no one's doing that. I have seen one company doing this called One Model, um, and they're just getting started. But that's just one example of a function that has no statistics or machine learning tools available to it, but needs to make a prediction to do their job. It's an interesting idea. I've been very skeptical on this idea of companies that purport to, you know, give the business analyst, for instance, mm-hmm. machine, machine learning capabilities. I had an old boss used to say that what was, it was his first rule of machine learning. The less you knew about an estimator, the more you could rely on the results. Right. Um, the idea um, of constraining the domain to just HR or yeah. just um, lead forecasting or just mm-hmm. probably makes it probably makes that tool less dangerous, or at least I can see the potential of it making a sort of customizable machine learning tool uh, yeah. that is a bit more drag and droppy, a little bit less dangerous than a, hey, just throw data in and here come, here, out comes your overfit model. Exactly. This is the this is the difficulty of this. You've got to strike a balance between being super general and no one having any idea how it works to being so specific that you have to have a strong mathematics background to understand it. But we're starting to see this, right? Like there are companies out there that help you train your own image detection algorithms. So it's like it, it gets you to label a bunch of stuff and try to say what you're trying to label. And so we're starting to see it, but I think there's just endless opportunity there. Actually, it's probably worth talking a bit about transfer learning as well as an yeah. interesting yeah, area um, that unlocks fundamental capability. So we've spoken a bit about um, training your own machine learning model from scratch. Then the other end of the spectrum it, where you need all your own data and the ability to you know, use machine learning effectively. Then you've got these APIs that will do an end-to-end thing for you, right? So you take... I don't know, some text and it will do tell you the positive or negative, you know, if the text is positive or negative sentiment. And then sometimes perhaps you want to do something where you, you want to do something that is close to, you know, I'll give you a real example. So um, let's say you had an API that does object detection and it can find a cat or a, you know, a, a giraffe in a in an image or a video. Um, let's say you wanted to pick out basketball players. You know, you're you're covering the playoffs, and you want to automatically pick out basketball players from a bit, bit of video. It's probably the case that you can't just use that object detection API to pick out. You know, this is LeBron and this is Steph Curry. But there isn't that much customization required. You know, you just need a little bit of customization. So this is idea of machine learning called transfer learning where you can train on one data set and then with a very small amount of additional data you can fine-tune the model uh, to do something else and i think there are are probably two opportunities one is the tooling that will allow uh, a non-machine learner to fine-tune their models you know is is probably uh, a pretty interesting area i think the opportunity with transfer learning is like you can for a startup you can start in one area and then very gradually expand your business into other areas by finding, by experimenting with transfer learning. So start in one area, build something good, make some money, get some customers, invest a little bit of that money, not a lot, and the leverage there being transfer the field of transfer learning and the research there into finding the very next adjacent area where you can transfer your models over to. And then go into that, make some money, whatever else, generate some cash, and then put R&D into the next one and the next one and the next one. So theoretically, this is a very interesting way to build a business through transfer, use through leveraging transfer learning. And actually, um, you know, you mentioned going to an, a very adjacent niche, which is probably the right call from a business perspective, but transfer learning is so unbelievable It's yeah. uh, that you can train. We see people on Kaggle train, take a pre-trained model trained on dogs versus cats and then, mm-hmm. and then fine tune that model to, to, 
diagnose uh, medical, you know, me- yeah, uh, diseases from medical images. Competitions. It's it's yeah. an amazing thing. So transfer learning, you can train on a one domain and apply the model to a so totally separate domain. And how it's working under the hood is, you've got a the model is doing the the dogs versus cats model that you trained uh, is doing basic things like edge detection, shape detection. It's doing like the fundamental pieces of image recognition. And so then if you only have a small number of medical images, you can, you know, a lot of the basic image recognition stuff was done with the dogs versus cats data. And then you just fine tune for the nuances of the yeah. medical data set. And I think there's, there's such fundamentally amazing find the, the idea of transfer learning is fundamentally unlocks so much you know yeah. i think there's so much that we, you could do with it without yeah. uh, huge amounts of data and just to help people develop an intuition for like how this works if you think about what deep learning is it's a network of many many layers right and so each layer is responsible for figuring something out like is that pixel different from that pixel okay yes then they pass it to the next layer is that pixel a different color from that pixel? Okay, yes. And they pass the next layer, et cetera, et cetera. The reason transfer learning works is because a lot of these layers are the same between models. And so if you just imagine a cake, it's like once you've got a multi-layer sponge cake, it's very easy to turn it into a black forest cake. It's very easy to turn it into whatever cake just by changing the icing. Um, and so this is sort of what it's doing. And so you only have to play with some of the layers between them. I thought you said keg. I was like, this is about to be very interesting. Yeah, this is your first All-Australian podcast after Exactly, (laughs) totally. Before getting into some of the vertical applications like healthcare and and such, I thought maybe, Ash, we could zoom out a little bit and maybe you could draw out some of the some of the characteristics that thread these ideas together that make them good ideas for you, separated from ideas that that you think are are not worth pursuing. Yeah, I think um, there's probably five things. There's many more, but like the first five things... I would say that would help people maybe narrow down on a startup idea if they want to sort of work in this field or they're sort of exploring this field is the first is very, very simple. It's very obvious, but it cannot be understated. And that is just focus on a specific problem of commercial industrial consequence, right? That is find a problem in a field where if you can generate a prediction using machine learning, it would be really valuable to people. So find a, a field where people are making predictions today that are really expensive to make, that are really unreliable, that involve a lot of coordination between humans to make. Find a field where automating their prediction making on a very reliable basis would be really valuable. So that's one. Two, think about vertical integration because it's really hard early on to build machine learning models that are accurate and reliable and stable over time without being fully in control of how you collect the data, how you clean the data, how you model the data, or how you train, then how you get your model, and then how you put that model in production, and then how you present those predictions to people, get their feedback, and then do that whole loop all over again. If you have to rely on someone else for any part of that loop, for example, if you buy all your data and then you have to clean it yourself, that could be a big like roadblock in getting that loop going. Or, for example, if you don't control the delivery of the prediction to someone, they might not believe it because you might not present it in a way where it's believable, it's not backed up and explained and whatever. So think about how you can vertically integrate around something. And if, for example, if you're in an industry where, like, 
the workflow is completely dominated by another company like ServiceNow or something like that, it's probably going to be really hard to build a proper machine learning based tool in that industry because you're never going to get that final step of feedback. The third thing is what data is available to you. As in, if you're in an industry where the data is just all locked up by some big company, you're going to spend a lot of time trying to get around them, trying to find a similar data set, trying to maybe negotiate with them to get it out of them. They're probably never going to give it to you. You could spend two years wasting your time negotiating with them. Think about like what data is available in that industry today. It's a good segue to healthcare after this. Yes, probably. And then the last two things are think about the shape of the payoff. So if you just visualize two curves, right? One curve is a concave curve. So it goes, think of an upside down parabola or half of it. And another is a convex curve, which is a normal parabola. And what, what you're looking at here on the, the vertical axis is payoff. Like what's the ROI I get from using this thing? And the horizontal axis is time um, or data. And think about if people believe your prediction that you're making, are they going to make money? Or if your prediction's wrong, how much are they going to lose? And so, again, maybe a segue into healthcare. A lot of the time with predictions you make in healthcare, if you get it right, like if you get a diagnosis right, for example, okay, that's good. You can send the patient home. If you get it wrong, someone dies. Whereas in sales, if you get it wrong, uh, someone's wasted five minutes on the phone. If you like tell them to call someone that you think is going to close and they don't. But if you get it right, you've made them a lot of money. So you want to focus on fields where the payoff shape is convex. And then finally, just think about staying away from the big tech companies. They're really, really good at machine learning and just don't be on their roadmap. Yeah. Because you'll get run over. Let's again, even with that, let's segue into healthcare. Do you worry? And I'm curious because you, you're excited about some opportunities in healthcare as broad space. We've seen a lot of technologists come in and not really understand the business model challenges or political Mm -hmm. challenges and then, you know, be, be shocked by them. But also you see companies like Amazon saying, Hey, we're going to get into how it's sort of unclear exactly what what them, Berkshire Hathaway and JB Morgan are going to do. But what are your thoughts on where the opportunities are, are there? Yeah, really good question. I'll start with something super pragmatic, which is where I think most of the opportunities are, and it's basic labor and resource utilization. Think about a hospital. You've got a lot of people running around all the time. They're highly paid, highly skilled people like nurses. And the way that hospitals allocate labor, like put people on shifts, the way that they have to flex up and down when there's like a big accident or a disaster or a big flu outbreak... The way that they do that and then also how those people are paid in terms of overtime, or whatever else, is super inefficient. If you also think about a hospital, there's all this expensive equipment and these supplies and drugs and all sorts of stuff just lying around. And the way they manage that, they move it around, the way they figure out how much to allocate to a certain operating room or not is really inefficient as well. And these are problems that can be solved with regression, basically. They can be solved with very, very basic forms of statistics and machine learning. It's also not something that has a huge workflow problem, integration problem, like working just in shift planning or just in supplies planning is not that hard. It's not like you have to completely change the way a doctor does their business. So I think that's the boring starting point. Other really promising areas sort of just going one step beyond that is standardizing clinical procedures. So if you think of a Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto, think about that at scale and at huge amounts of breadth across all healthcare. A lot of healthcare is 
about differential diagnoses and what are what is machine learning it's like differential computing basically it's differentiable programming and so helping doctors make sure that they go through the right follow the sort of the right gradient their decision making process is a very important thing to do and it's a very easy thing to do and it's also not a very offensive thing to do for a doctor it's like hey here's a reminder i'm not telling you how to do your job i'm not making the diagnosis for you but i'm just trying to nudge you in the right direction and then one step beyond that is just data presentation like if you're a doctor and you're developing a plan for radiology for someone who has cancer like you're figuring out what basically what particles to shoot at the cancer remembering the toxicity of that like well if i combine this particle with this treatment and this and that how likely is it the person suffers this side effect that's like a it's it's a a joint probability problem right and it's hard for humans to do those in their head really quickly it was very easy for a computer to do that in its head really quickly. Also, by the way, with the latest data. So getting the latest study data, uh, a doctor plugging in, okay, I'm thinking about doing this drug and this radiotherapy and this chemotherapy. What are the chances this patient develops this side effect? It's really easy for a computer to answer that question. And again, you're not telling the doctor how to do their job. You're not telling them to change the treatment plan. You're just reminding them of the actual probability. And again, humans are not good at that. And it's it'd be nice if doctors have, had a nudge. Um, so I think that's a really promising area of machine learning as well. And then finally, if you think about a lot of people a while ago, so like five, seven years ago, got really excited about all these sensors, right? We've got all these wearables. We've got Fitbits. We've got these scales. They've got these Apple Watches. People started developing like EKG things that attach to your phone. And so they measure your heartbeat really accurately. All these things, they've amounted to nothing, right? In terms of have they actually changed clinical practice? No, not really. But that does, I still believe that they will. And the reason they haven't is because we've actually got too much data and doctors can't make any sense of it. So if you think about all the things we can monitor in someone's home, whether it's how they're sleeping, what they're eating, when they get up in the morning, the color of the light in their bedroom, the noise level while they're sleeping, all that sort of stuff. If we're able to process that data at scale, so remove all the noise, pull it together and try and associate it with some sort of real medical outcome, that could be really helpful for things like um, monitoring patients with chronic heart failure or really helpful even for diabetics. There's been a lot of good work done in around diabetes in terms of ongoing monitoring. But ongoing monitoring of massive amounts of data that's just ambiently collected every day, that's a problem for a machine learning engineer. Um, and that's a, that's promising. One of my favorite examples of the the you know taking sensors that are around us and trying to diagnose something is all our cell phones have accelerometers. Yeah. What a great way to diagnose Parkinson's disease! And it was actually we did some work yeah. with the Michael J. Fox Foundation on that. Um, it, it's unfortunately not deployed at scale, but uh, it, it's possible. You know, we all go to the restroom many yeah. times a day, having sensors yeah. that that detect what's going into the the toilet could be kind of interesting as well. Yeah. Yeah, I want uh, because I want to get to ideas uh, that people shouldn't pursue. If, if can we uh, summarize? Are there any threads that tie together your thoughts on you know, manufacturing, construction, or supply chain in terms of how entrepreneurs should be thinking about the space? Or what to think about there? Uh, manufacturing, supply chain, and construction is like what new data is available, or what data is currently being generated from sensors that we just can't process because it's super high volume. Yeah. So I don't know. I guess the one thing I'd go back to is like 
just start with what data you're even looking at um, and what's changed about that and what what incremental analytical capability can you add to people. So what spaces are we bearish on or, or less bullish on or what ideas, whether it's in, in what we talk about data tooling, enterprise, healthcare, idea or, or otherwise ideas people bring to you and like, that's going to be like, I just won't fund that just based on its idea. You're a great entrepreneur, but there's, there's not a, you know, access to new data. It's just, it's locked up. For example, one thing you're, you're bearish on ashes is uh, computational drug discovery. Yeah. So I'll clarify it by saying, I think if someone comes to you and says, I'm going to use machine learning to discover a new drug, that's like, I mean, machine learning in a way is like A-B testing. It's like saying, I'm going to A-B test my way to a fundamentally new understanding of the most complex system known to man. It's just not believable. Like, it's just like epistemically a little bit arrogant. The point about biological systems is that they're super complex. There are a lot of unknown unknowns. And so you need real scientific knowledge to narrow the the space, the solution space, right? So you need someone who actually understands the fundamentals of how these systems work, whether you're working with liver, whether you're working with kidneys or whatever you're working with, narrow it down to something and then use machine learning to turbocharge the, the experimentation process. That's where it can be really useful. So I would say like, a computational drug discovery idea that is not sufficiently where they haven't sufficiently narrowed the solution space with some sort of knowledge of biology is to me like a very open-ended intractable sort of problem that could take anywhere from five seconds to five millennia to solve we just don't know so I, I, yeah it's it's very good at turbocharging the experimentation though so I think there's a role. Just to push back on that, um, my understanding is that in pharma, uh, the vast majority of small molecules that were discovered followed these heuristics called, I think, Lipinski's five rule. Mm-hmm. So it had the molecule was only so large, et cetera, et cetera. And that was based on, you know, somebody's human created heuristics. And mm-hmm. so an improve a machine learning version of Lipinski's rules could certainly, uh, maybe we're agreeing, accelerate drug discovery, right? Mm-hmm. Albeit not be, you know, it's not going to find, it's not going to find with certainty, but may uh, zero in on targets much faster. Yeah, I think that's the point. Like the very beginning of the process of discovering a drug or a cure to disease is narrowing it down using rules like this or whatever else. The next part is really accelerated by machine learning. And then the final part, again, requires a lot of humans, and that's actually bringing the drug to market and having people with experience and the regulatory contacts and whatever else to do that. So I think machine learning really helps to like massively simplify it just in the middle. Um, it very much accelerates that. I think we are agreeing. Yeah. yeah. And you have some skepticism around machine learning applied to autonomous vehicles? Well, not around machine learning applied to it. I have skepticism around startups working on it. And the reason is if you think about a, a vehicle, um, you to get it right, you have to understand metal, as in like building shells of stuff. You have to understand maps. You have to understand machine learning. You have to build models off novel sensors. And you have to have a marketplace of, you know, so demanding and supplying cars. And they're five very big problems. And so it's highly unlikely one company in the world will solve all five of them. Even if you think about Google, who's arguably the furthest ahead, they've probably solved two or three of them. 
And so you're going to have to partner with other companies to do the other two or three or the other four if you've nailed one of them. Let's say you have an amazing new sensor. You'll need to partner with companies to make the other four parts of this problem work. The thing about partnering is to form a big, meaningful partnership that's beneficial for both partners, parties, you have to have leverage. Startups have no leverage over anyone for anything. So that's the problem. I think that to succeed in this space, you have to form a coalition and startups have very little negotiation leverage in forming such coalitions. Volvo has great leverage. Audi has great leverage. Toyota, all these companies have great leverage because they, they've got the metal thing down pat. The mapping companies, Google has great leverage because it's got the best maps on the planet. Some of these sensor companies, Velodyne has great leverage because they've got the only sensor that actually works. So a lot of these companies have leverage in forming these partnerships and you're seeing them form amazing coalitions and actually bring, starting to bring stuff to market. But a startup, it's just going to be really hard to do that. I think there'll be a lot of good M&A activity for startups at reasonable multiples because there are going to be gaps in the technology stacks of a lot of these partnerships that form or these coalitions. But other, that, that's not really what I like to do for a living. I like to support companies for a long period of time and see them become independent companies of consequence. But other people might like doing that for a living. I don't know. Right. What are other ideas, you know, besides companies that compete with, you know, Amazon, Facebook, et cetera, Google, what are other ideas that you think that are in your do not build list that, you, you know, entrepreneurs keep coming to you and say, you know, I want to do X. Let's, uh, let's swiftly shit on some ideas or, <laughs> or you know, prevent entrepreneurs from going down paths that I've got one lead to nowhere. For sure. I mean, the, the most alluring idea is I can't, cannot tell you how many companies I've seen attempt this, um, where it's, Hey, just, I'm going to build you a tool that you just throw your data in and out comes a good machine yeah. learning model. And <laughs> that, that idea is probably the, the most common machine learning startup idea. And, uh, it goes back to what I said before, you know, the quote from my former boss, the less you know about how machine learning works, the more you can rely on the results. It unfortunately still takes skill to train a model and to have it, uh, be able to be deployed into production and still function, uh, as it should. So that's, that is, that is my number one. Yeah. And again, to help people with the intuition around this and like machine learning is fundamentally an optimization technology, right? It's, it's optimizing. It's going down a gradient. It's doing all these differential equations to narrow in on a solution to something. And so what's the opposite of optimization? Generalization. And so even saying something like, I have a machine learning model that will solve generally solve the problems you have that's like oxymoronic and the and also just like if you think about the practice of machine learning the fun is in all the tuning and like getting it right and trying things running all these hypotheses through it to like get closer and closer to the answer and then when the system's running it's really satisfying and you're doing delivering a lot of value with really high leverage i'll give you a nice example of uh, what applying machine learning blindly looks like so we were given a data set very early on about predicting prostate cancer and you know we just blindly fed it into a random forest which was a popular algorithm at the time and we were predicting prostate cancer with 99.7 percent accuracy ama- amazing results and uh 
started inspecting the model, you know, what was driving the performance. Um, and it turned out had, um, the most predictive variable was had prostate cancer surgery, which is a very good predictor of whether or not, uh, and so it's, it's just, that, that's a very obvious example. There are much more nuanced examples of how machine learning goes wrong. Um, you know, the, the automated algorithm maps row number on, uh, the target variable. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes, you know, it just so happens the results were ordered in some certain way where, you you know, all the true prostate cancers are in the first half and the, the fault and the no, no prostate cancer was in the second half of the data. So knowing how to quote unquote debug a model is crucial uh, to be able to deploy yeah. it. And going back to our discussion before, especially in healthcare, yeah. there's so much selection bias in healthcare data sets because if you think about a nurse taking a test for a patient in intensive care or taking a measurement, They'll only take that measurement if they think that patient's deteriorating. So there's selection bias there. Or if you think about a, a data set over a population over their lifetime, the people included in that data set may just have been the people who actually died from that condition, not the people who lived. Like there's all sorts of problems. Well, not problems, all sorts of nuances to data collection that particularly bear themselves out in medical cases and medical data sets, but in all sorts of fields, other fields. Yeah. What about voice? Were, were the opportunities there or, or places where you think, ah, eh, not, not as fruitful? I was actually getting excited when uh, Ash was talking about his newsfeed idea. And I was thinking, I mean, I use Google Home all the time at home. And I was thinking, oh, man, if I could have a Google Home that I could ask work questions to uh, that you know, had access to, you know, that really understood all the... the yeah, you could sit on the couch all day. I think you just keep going. I keep going back to this boring thing. Like, yes, if it's executing a specific workflow... Specifically in voice, if you think about what a lot of voice applications are today and where the state of the art is very good and very satisfactory, it's in transcription. It's automated speech recognition. Like, do I know what's the sound? How can I translate the sounds you're making into words and then into sentences and whatever? That's pretty good. And a lot of voice AI startups are sort of just doing that. That doesn't really yield very much, right? Saying people say things differently to how they write them down. And this delta is where the opportunity for prediction exists. As in, as we're doing right now, we think through talking. And so if you can interpolate between the words people are saying, you might be able to figure out what they're actually thinking. And then you might be able to actually do something for them, like do a chore, execute a task, whatever that they were thinking about, and have sort of articulated in an attempt to think about it more and get and get it done. Now, that's very different to writing something down. And the delta between that is where the opportunity lies, right? Like I can type into my task app, you know, pick up dry cleaning. And that's very clear what that has to do. And then another app can take it, you know, go into a TaskRabbit API and whatever else and like maybe find someone to go and pick up the dry cleaning. That's very simple but like being able to say to your computer i think i i can't remember if i need to pick up that shirt or something and then turning that into a task that then is executed in the real world that's difficult and that's where the opportunity in voice is so what i'm saying is it's it's a little bit further down in the machine learning pipeline it's not in like recognizing it better it's not in like giving someone in a factory an opportunity to take notes you know maybe helping doctors take notes is an opportunity but that's not really going to add all that much value, just transcription. It's figuring out what people are trying to say is where the opportunity is. That's a bit vague, 
but that's just like a clue to where the opportunities exist. I'm an investor in voice ops, which is a great, great company that's trying to help, you know, is conversational analysis for sales and help sales managers coach uh, sales reps. So definitely check them out. Any plugs where, where can people find you on the internet or any, anything people should stay tuned for, you know, uh, for following Zeta or, or Kaggle. Uh, so if you're looking to build a machine learning startup, if you don't know mach- machine learning, start on Kaggle. Kaggle Learn is, is really good as a place to uh, start your AI uh, education journey. Zeta, we write a fair bit on Medium. You can see us post all that stuff on our website, but we don't do a lot of promotion. I just encourage you to check out the companies on our website and go figure out what they're doing. And if you're interested in what they're doing, if you find it fascinating, ask them for a job because they're all hiring. Awesome. Yeah. If you're, if you're interested in the conversation we, we had today, definitely read, uh, all, all of the Zeta posts. There's a lot of, a lot of great writing out there where, where he dives deeper into some Thank of you. the principles behind it. Awesome. This has been a great conversation. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 